Hello and welcome to A Thriving Future with me, Hannah Temple. In episode one, I shared a framework that I use to help clients and others think about what it means for organizations to be more regenerative. It brings together the different aspects of organizational operation and practice into one holistic frame. And it encourages us to ask, what can nature teach us about how these different aspects of organizational practice can be more supportive of the greater thriving of life? The framework takes the form of a tree and is broken down into five different areas. So to recap, the five areas are firstly the soil, which represents the organization's groundings and its foundations. And that's what we're going to be diving into today. The second area is the root network, and that represents the organization's network of relationships with suppliers, customers, donors, employees, and so on. The third area is the trunk, which refers to all of the organizational internal piece. So the processes, the culture, the decision-making processes, the physical environment, and so on. The fourth area is fruits, flowers, and foliage, which refers to everything that the organization puts out into the world, from its products, to its messaging, to its taxes. And the fifth area are the materials that flow through the organization, from money to energy. In this episode, we're going to be diving deep into the soil and considering what it could mean for this aspect of organizational practice and behavior to be more or less supportive of the greater thriving of life. We'll reflect on what we've heard about this from the episode so far, and where helpful, I'll share some insights from my experience of running an organization myself. Now, as any gardener will tell you, the soil is vital. If the soil isn't healthy or you don't know it well, it's much more difficult to cultivate thriving organisms. And the same applies to organizations. The soil from which the organization springs plays a massive role in shaping that organization's path and the things that are easier or more difficult for it. There are three key elements that I include within the soil. Firstly, the organization's origin story and its history. How did the organization come into being? What has been the trajectory and the elements of its story until now? Secondly, what are the core statements of the organization's identity and purpose? So that might be things like its vision statement, its mission statement, purpose statement. These are the statements that really play a big role in shaping what that organization does and who it is. And sometimes those statements might also be codified into legal documents like charitable objects or articles of association. The third aspect of the soil is the legal ownership and financing structures of the organization. So that might be, you know, what's the actual legal type of the organization? Is it a limited liability company? Is it a community interest company, a charity, a partnership, a cooperative, a trust? And similarly also, what's the nature of its financing? So does it receive its financing through donations, through sales of products or services, through the sale of shares or investments? What's the nature of its financing? 
So those are the three kind of foundational elements that constitute the soil. And in this episode, what we're going to be doing is investigating, well, what would it mean for those three areas of organisational practice and characteristics to be more or less regenerative? We're not going to be doing this in a completely comprehensive way. We're not going to be going through every single aspect of what that could mean for each of those areas to be as regenerative as possible. But I want to give you a general overview of the kinds of things that I think characterize a more or less regenerative approach to those different areas. So let's start with the organization's history and story. So being regenerative, as we heard in episode one, is about supporting the greater thriving of life. And we talked about this as being a really holistic concept of not just talking about the greater thriving of life of people now. It's talking about all humans now, absolutely. It's also talking about all life. So not just humans, but plants, animals, fungi, and so on. And it's also not just talking about life now. It's talking about future generations of life and what organisations can do to support the greater thriving of that life now and into the future. Now, in order for us to do this, it's also really important that we don't just look forward, but we also look back. And we acknowledge that there may have been acts that organisations have taken that have contributed to the lesser thriving of life that may have caused harm or damage to communities, to individuals, to ecosystems. And we need to recognise that actually if we want to move forward and support the greater thriving of life now and into the future, a key part of that is acknowledging and remedying harms that have taken place in the past. So for example, many organisations around now have legacies associated with the transatlantic slave trade. It may be that their founders were slave owners or supporters of the trade. It may be that actually the organisation has received financing in some way associated with the slave trade. UCL in the UK has produced an amazing database uh, compiling all of the different legacies of the slave trade and their associations with organisations, UK organisations now. I will absolutely include a link to that database in the show notes because it's it's fantastic. Um, but obviously connections to the slave trade is not the only way in which organisations might have contributed to historic harm. So for example, organisations with very large historic contributions to greenhouse gas emissions, uh, fossil fuel companies, companies with very large carbon footprints, these might also have been argued to have caused damage in the past that is currently uh, being felt. Equally, organisations might have historic associations with abuses like pollution, child labour or sexual abuse. And so if organisations wish to become more regenerative, then really looking at these harms and doing everything in their power to remedy, heal and redress that damage is a vital step. And that's not only because being regenerative is about being holistic, about considering impacts on life now, in the future and historically, but it's also about recognising that everything is interconnected. Recognising that even when harms or damage took place in the past, those individuals may no longer be with us, that harm is with us now too. Because communities carry inherited traumas, there are inherited economic inequalities, persisting issues with ecosystem health, climate change. The impacts that organisations have been associated with in the past continue to live on now. 
So if we want to create a more thriving future, looking back and reckoning with and healing our pasts is a crucial part of that. Some companies are starting to play with how they might do this. So Green King, which is a brewer in the United Kingdom, and Lloyds of London, which is a bank, have both taken steps to explore and share their connections to the transatlantic slave trade and are exploring ways in which they might contribute to the healing of that damage through financial and other support to opportunities for black and ethnic minority communities who are still feeling the repercussions of that inequality and that damage. There are growing calls uh, for fossil fuel companies and those with very large emissions legacies to pay reparations to communities and countries who are suffering the worst effects of climate change. But how an organisation goes about achieving meaningful remedy is a whole other conversation and body of work. But in very, very simplified terms, successful remedy is contingent upon the true centering of those who have been affected. And that is a, a massive, massive job. But to answer our question, what would it mean for an organization's history to be more regenerative? For me, a key thing is a willingness to look at that history with really open eyes, to acknowledge the harms done intentionally or otherwise and to commit genuinely and thoughtfully to healing and remedying that damage as best as possible. Let's turn now to the second element, the statements of identity. These are those core statements of purpose and identity that play a massive role in shaping who the organisation is and what it does. Some of them stipulate legally what the organisation can and cannot do and how it must behave in certain circumstances, and others are less formal, but nonetheless they act as powerful guides for the organisation's behaviour and its decision making. And overall, they play a massive role in determining which paths are easier or more difficult for the organisation to take. In my experience, the organisations that have been able to behave in the most regenerative ways are those where these formal and informal statements and commitments reflect a commitment to the greater thriving of life. Because these give the organisation the permission and the basis to make decisions in line with those regenerative values. And this is crucial because no matter what kind of organisation we're talking about, there are always times when these commitments are challenged. Whether that's because costs for materials are increasing or customers are demanding a certain direction or investors are pushing in a certain way. There are always times when an organisation falls back on its statements and its commitments. And in those cases, it's crucial that those reinforce regenerative values. The company that I founded is called Tealco, which stands for the Teal Collective. And its mission statement is to support pioneering organisations to become regenerative forces in the world. And this has been really helpful because it makes it incredibly easy for us to decide who we work with and what kind of work we do. Because if we get a sense that the client or the prospective client doesn't have a real commitment to contributing to the greater thriving of life, and if the nature of the work that they're doing is not in service of that ambition, then that work is not for us. 
In episode three, Cressy Westling from Elvis and Cressy shared how she and her partner rewrote the constitution for their business to state that the planet and its people are more important than profit. When these statements and commitments prioritise the greater thriving of life, it means that for these organisations, the regenerative path is the default path and the regenerative decision is the default decision. It means that no matter what happens, no matter who is involved in that organisation or how it is held in future, those regenerative principles, that regenerative ambition will be the thing that guides it forward. And it makes it so much easier for the organisation to put life at the centre. So to return to our question, what would it mean for these statements of identity and purpose to be more regenerative? They would prioritise the greater thriving of people and planet. Now let's turn to our third area, ownership and financing structures. I'm often asked whether there is a particular model that is inherently more regenerative, a particular business model or structure or approach that's the one that you need to use if you want to set up a regenerative organisation. And my answer is no, there isn't one particular model or one particular legal structure or method of financing that is the regenerative model. Rather, the key thing is, what are the values upon which those financing and ownership arrangements have been based? If the ownership arrangements of the organisation, whether those owners are charity directors, a family that owns a company, the shareholders who own a publicly listed business, employees that own a cooperative, no matter who those owners are, if the priorities of those owners are short-term profit over long-term thriving, then that is what will drive the organisation. Similarly for financing. If the funders of a movement or the investors in a business have particular objectives in mind that are not completely aligned with the commitment to the greater thriving of life, then this will make it much more difficult for the organisation to make any truly meaningful progress towards that ambition. In episode two, we heard from Yannick Schoenhoven about La Junquera Farm and their conversation with investors. Unique mentioned that they felt pressured at one point to take on a loan on a 10-year horizon. They felt that if they had had to repay that loan within 10 years, that would have required them to push both themselves and the land in ways that were not generative. And instead, they felt that actually a longer-term horizon of more like 20 years would be much more appropriate for them to be able to deliver on that commitment in a way that keeps the greater thriving of life at the centre. By putting the greater thriving of life at the centre of their conversations with their investors, La Junquera was ensuring that the arrangements that they agreed were in line with their values. I want to offer an example now from Tealco too. So the fundamental legal structure of Tealco is as a company limited by guarantee. Now, what that means in practice for Tealco is that the organization can never become a vehicle for the accumulation of profit. It can't accumulate resources that can then be sold and make me loads of money as the founder. Instead, it can only really be used as a vehicle 
because any money that accumulates in that organization can only be used for the deployment of its purpose, for the achievement of its goals. And that, I think, provides me with massive reassurance that the organization, no matter what happens, no matter what role I play in it in future, that it can only ever be used for its objectives. And there's a third example that I want to bring in, which demonstrates that the structure isn't necessarily the important thing, but the values that underpin them. Last year, Patagonia made headlines due to the decision of its owner, Yvonne Suinard, to transfer his family's ownership of the company to a group of trusts and not-for-profits that will maintain the company's independence and guarantee that all of its profits are used to fight climate change. And in Yvonne's words, to save our home planet. Now, I think this is an important case study to have a think about because, firstly, there's something about the new ownership structure, which, due to the way that it's been set up, not only enables but compels the organisation to put the thriving of life at the centre, but there's something about the fact that, actually, Patagonia's progress towards regenerative ambitions is not due to this new structure, this ownership structure, or the fact that before it was a family-owned organisation. The fact is, is that both of those arrangements were based on regenerative values. The fact that Yvonne and his family held regenerative values as their core purpose meant that the organisation made a huge amount of progress in this area whilst it was family-owned. And the fact that they've now set up a charitable trust and NGOs to hold the organization under those same regenerative values is, again, ensuring that continuation of that, of life being at the center. So the point is that it's not actually the type of ownership or financing structure that an organization has that makes the difference. It's what are the values upon which those arrangements are based. So... What does it mean for ownership and financing arrangements to be more regenerative? It means for them to be based on the prioritization of shared regenerative values. And often that means longer term time horizons for these relationships and commitments. In conclusion, when it comes to an organization's soil, its foundations, its grounding, there are a few things that we can say that characterize a more regenerative approach. Firstly, investigating, acknowledging, and really seeking to meaningfully remedy harms associated with the organization's origins and history is key. Secondly, when establishing, identifying statements, statements of commitment, and also when codifying them in key documents like Articles of Association, it's vital that those statements commit the organisation to prioritising the greater thriving of life. And thirdly, when considering ownership structures, financing arrangements, it is vital that those arrangements are based on a formalised agreement of shared regenerative values. So, if you're listening to this wondering how you can help the company, the charity, the religious institution that you're part of to become more regenerative, then how about starting a conversation about the history of the organization? 
How about reviewing the fundamental statements and documents that enshrine who you are and what you're here for? How about reviewing the language in your financing and ownership contracts? The soil is not the be-all and end-all of what makes a regenerative organisation, but it does lay a really important foundation that massively shapes how the organisation develops. Taking time to really tend this soil can massively enhance the regenerative capabilities of the organisation that that soil supports. We have some more amazing interview episodes coming up with pioneering leaders. And after that, the next one of these solo episodes will be exploring the organization's root system and what it means for an organization's network and its relationships to be more regenerative. I really hope that you found this valuable. If you have comments or questions or things that you'd like me to cover in future episodes, please get in touch. You can find me on LinkedIn, Hannah Temple, and also via uh, Tealco's website at tealco.org. Wishing you all all the best until next time. And if I can just leave you with one thing, until we speak again, whenever you are in doubt, go outside. <laughs>